<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 675 with my guest, Dr. Sarah Michaud. I'm Paul Gilmartin, and uh, this here podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour, is a, is a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. Uh, it is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Um, thank you, those of you who have uh, become Patreon donors. Uh, it means a lot to me, and we still have a long way to go to break even with the podcast. Uh, if you're interested in helping out financially, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash mentalpod and uh, you can donate as little as a dollar a month. And depending on what tier you give to, uh, you qualify for certain rewards and I'm not going to list them all here. You can you can check it out. You can also donate through PayPal. Uh, my Venmo handle is at mentalpod. Um, so any and all of those. And you can also help the podcast non-financially. Uh, subscribe. Download uh, all the episodes. That definitely helps. Give us a nice review on uh, Apple Podcasts. All of that. Spread the word through social media. I like how I just keep acting like I'm done and then I add another thing. That's uh, that's my only gift. That's <laughs> That's the most special gift I was born with. Uh, this is an email that I got from uh, a listener who wants to be referred to as Doctor with the Pink Hair. And she writes, uh, Hi, Paul. I was listening to your latest episode this morning, and I couldn't help but contact you regarding the Ask Paul Anything from the person who murdered her abusive father. I am a psychiatrist, and I frequently work with extreme trauma and those that have committed crimes, including someone who murdered a pedophile. I say all of this to tell you, in the parentheses, in case you don't know already, that mental health professionals cannot report past crimes. It sounds like that listener has been through unmeasurable trauma, and any trauma-informed therapist has heard it all. I hope that listener gets the help they deserve. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. This is from the uh, aforementioned Ask Paul Anything survey. Um, are you impressed that I use the word aforementioned? I'm actually doing it right now dressed like a yacht captain. Um, when, I, when I put that on, and I wear the hat too, and uh, some nice dock siders so I don't slip on the boat. When I put that on, uh, I feel compelled to use big words. And if you're wondering, Gracie is on my starboard side. This is, 
Dan from the aforementioned Ask Paul Anything, filled out by Fenella. And uh, Fenella writes, uh, not so much an ask. I just wanted to respond to one of your listener surveys from episode 674. She had mentioned that she spiraled into OCD when an ex was threatening suicide and that her family was unsympathetic. I went through a similar-sounding situation last year where I developed severe stress, including pure O. Uh, OCD. I was in a complete lunatic. I was a complete lunatic for about two months straight. And I thank God I. I think the word I doesn't need to be in there. And I thank God my sister and mother were there taking care of me day in, day out. I never forgot the people that abandoned me during this time. Yes, I forgave them, but I never fully trusted them again. I think it's fair uh, that you. To feel, I think it's fair that you to feel unsafe and heard by your family. I think there's a typo in there. I'm, I'm slowly, I'm simmering. Uh, when you're drowning and you reach out for help, it can be impossible to forgive someone who scoffed at the seriousness of the situation. I genuinely hope you're doing better now. And Paul, we love you and don't want you to go anywhere. Give us all the ads. We can take and will take them. That's very nice. And then and any comments to make the podcast better, perhaps you could have a survey where we can respond to what others have written in. Done. I went and created a survey. Uh, it's not posted on the website yet. I'm waiting for my web guy to get my email to add it. But it's called the uh, comment on somebody's uh, survey. And uh, I put the link to it on uh, Twitter now known as X. Uh, and thank you for for uh, sharing that survey. I appreciate it. I want to give a shout out, and this is a paid shout out from uh, a listener. And uh, her name is Claire Goldstein. And she writes, Claire, uh, and this is what she would like uh, me to read. Claire is an autistic person who is also a photographer. She loves to find inspiration in the world around her. And she is excited to be combining her love of sharing her photography with her love of mental illness happy hour by running a holiday slash New Year special from now until January 22nd. 2024, 20% of profits from any purchases through her website will be donated to Mental Illness Happy Hour. No special code needed. Please check her out online at fabphotog.com. That's P-H-A-B-P-H-O-T-O-G.com or at cgoldsteinphoto.com. Thank you, Claire. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Chrissy. And uh, about her anorexia, she writes, loss of control, trying to gain full control. I don't know if we've ever had a struggle in a sentence that captures the insanity of addiction more concisely and accurately than that. Isn't it amazing how addictions, I mean, isn't it really just an attempt to soothe our frustration, anger, hopelessness that we don't have control over the things in our lives that we want to have control over. 
I'm getting a little, it's raining out and I'm getting a little electrical spikes. Um, so if you hear those, I apologize. I'll try to remember to, uh, to edit them out afterwards. Thank you for that, Chrissy. I wonder if that's Chrissy from Three's Company. I know she's a big fan of this show. The character Chrissy, not the actress. Actually, I think Suzanne Summers died. Hi, I'm 90. This is uh, also from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Jory, J-O-R-Y. And he writes, I don't feel remorse or empathy. Am I a person? My family took that diagnosis from a school counselor and ran with it, turning it into the justification for fucking me, taking away my food and verbally degrading me. They called me a monster, not an evil person, not a bad person, not a person at all, a monster. For years, that kept me sane. No person could survive being starved for days at a time and locked outside overnight in the winter and fucked by three people at the same time before they were 10. A monster can. A monster is immortal. It outlasts everything. I like monsterhood. It's useful. I don't know what to do with the personhood people insist on saying I have. I don't regret a single thing I've ever done. I don't feel bad when horrible things happen to others. I don't feel connected to anyone. I want to be connected to someone. I just don't think it's possible. In irreconcilable differences. Whatever I am is incompatible with humans. Mostly, it doesn't bother me to state that. It bothers my therapist a whole lot that I don't identify as a person. But a person is loving, is kind, is connected to others. I am none of those things. Antisocial personality disorder is not a curable condition. It's not one your forum has a section for. Actually, I, I, based on this, I went and I just created one. Uh, it's an inherent divergence in my coding. I was never designed for personhood, unless I'm drastically misunderstanding the concept of personhood, that is. What is it you non-ASPD folk even mean with that word? Well, one of the things, thank you for, for sharing that, and one of the things I, I want to say is um, uh, when, when you describe what makes up a person, um, you know, you, you say uh, a person is loving, is kind, is connected to others. Yeah, that is part of being a person, but people can also be mean, cruel, um, hypocritical, you know, on and on and on. Everybody has a light side and a dark side, and I'm not trying to minimize um, a personality disorder and say, no, you don't have it. I don't know. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. But the fact that you're going to therapy, I think, is huge, and I think you should Give yourself some credit for that. This is from the Love Survey, and this is, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself her big, strong man. And he writes, I love my wife and how committed she is to improving her mental health. She's come a long way, and I'm very proud. She's an avid listener of this podcast, and by default, I've listened to a handful of episodes too. So if you're listening, baby girl, I love you and have a great day. And just so you know, it's you I'm talking about. 
Our recent anniversary trip to Lexington was absolutely perfect. I love that. Love that. This is uh, from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself, I swear I proofread before I submitted. And uh, what would you like to ask? I can't remember the episode, but in recent interviews, you've speculated that growing up in a household with rigid expectations leads to negative consequences later in life. I was raised in a conservative Catholic household by neurotic parents, and any time I wanted something outside of their box, we would have screaming fights, even when I was young, as young as six. Despite no outright abuse, I find it extremely difficult to open up emotionally to my parents now as an adult, and I find it hard to do anything when not motivated by fear or escape. I'm also terrified of every person in the world. Anyway, when you spoke about the effects of rigid parenting, it really spoke to me, and I was hoping to hear if you had any other thoughts. Um, You know, abuse can be an absence of emotional intelligence. And it does, that's not to throw the parent under the bus and say, you know, you, you should have done better. Shame on you. You know, they were probably just repeating the patterns that they were raised with. But I say that so that you can, um, give weight to what happened to you. Um, so that, so that you can begin to heal and begin to, um, have compassion for yourself. There, in my opinion, it is really hard to get out of the darkness and develop better coping mechanisms when we're spending half our time shaming ourselves. And um, two great resources for this, I think, would be, uh, I think it's about a three-page article by a guy named Dr. Alan Rappaport, and it's called Co-Narcissism. And it's about the effects of growing up with narcissistic parents, not parents with narcissistic personality disorder, but parents who um, uh, kind of it, it, it were not open to uh, ideas other than their own, where it was kind of all about them in many ways, who had narcissistic tendencies. And he talks about the patterns of thinking and actions and ineffective coping mechanisms that the children of narcissistic parents develop. And I found it very comforting. And my parents were not bad people. They were damaged people. And reading that article, it helped me give weight to the fact that I check a lot of the boxes that he lists. Uh, And some of them can be being a, a bit narcissistic and, you know, out of fear of not being seen, um, sometimes make it about me. And another great resource is the book Running on Empty by Dr. Janice Webb. I think you would get a lot out of that. And listen to her episode if you haven't already. It's a really good episode. Uh, This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by D from Northern Cali. And uh, what are your issues, struggles, past abuse of metal, physical, verbal, and sexual, most of it from my ex-husband, family, and past boss of 35 years, what has helped you deal with them, I've been through a lot of therapy in my life, what changed for me is when I found ACA, adult child of alcohol and dysfunctional families, Uh, I've been in the ACA group for many years, I've learned that I am not my past, I am my present. 
I've learned to live one day at a time in the here and now. What, if anything, have people said or done that has helped you? Finding ACA has changed my life for the better. I have a safe place to share my feelings from within. They let you share your inner secrets of abuse in a non-judgment manner. Love it. Thank you, D. We are going to take a quick break to see if we have any sponsors. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And finally, this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Christopher Robin. And he writes, we added a few new employees to our team at work and we were doing a meet and greet on an audio-only conference call to welcome them. Everyone was going around doing introductions sharing about themselves and describing the group dynamic. I'm staring at my ceiling, fighting off intrusive thoughts about suicide and self-harm when it's my turn. These kinds of activities aren't my favorite, so I gave a brief 20 seconds about my responsibilities, a couple of hobbies, and wrapped it up in a way that I felt was concise, concise but appropriate. Immediately after I finished, a woman I've worked with for a couple of years now started talking about me as if my introduction wasn't sufficient. She, start, she started talking about some of my other interests and what I get up to in my spare time. After speaking for me about a recent trip I went on, she concluded, but he can kind of be like Eeyore, the sad donkey sometimes. A couple people on the call messaged me immediately to say that it isn't true and that is just how I and many others act towards her specifically because she does stuff like announce to your entire department that she thinks you're a depressed donkey. I seriously doubt she ever saw the Eeyore sticker on my laptop. My consciousness might be disintegrating. 
heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Sarah Michaud uh, thank you for making the the trip in from from Massachusetts. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I appreciate it. Uh, um, we've chatted a couple of times via email about stuff. Um, you are a psychologist, also an author, and also a YouTuber. Um, and we'll plug those uh, those things at the end. But one of the main things we want to talk about is codependency and. The things that, uh, well, you, you put it into your words, uh, the aspects of codependency that kind of are below the radar that people right. may not realize, uh, you know, because classically we think of the wife of the alcoholic. Right. As that, oh, that's what codependency right. is. Right. But some of the stuff that you talk about. Right. Is so. Take it from there. Take it from there. Okay. Hi. Um, yeah, it's funny. I was looking through some of your episodes today, and it does seem like a lot of people have talked about codependency. And in a way, I even hate that word now because <laughs> it's so overused. And because I've been sober, my son says I'm 100 years old. So I've been sober almost 40 years. That's so awesome. So, I mean, it goes back to like, you know, and I'm sure people have talked about this, you know, when Melody Beattie put out Codependent No More and Claudia Black and Jonathan Bradshaw and all these people from like the 80s, Terry Gorski, I think, and all these people, Janet Woits, you know, the adult child stuff. And it was like you just said, it was originally the typical kind of housewife married to the male alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And... Really, why I feel so strongly about it is, is a few reasons. First of all, I believe it's just as dangerous as addiction. And the reason I believe that is because I believe people can die from codependency just like people die from Couldn't addiction. Agree more. Yes. Okay. I'm so glad. I mean, I don't know if you ever read any Gabor Mate, but he... He just came out with the myth of normal, and one of his early books was When the Body Says No. And I remember reading that book, which is all about like different illnesses, MS, cancer, all of these sicknesses. And he describes clients and patients that he had who got these illnesses. And when I was reading these stories, basically every single one of them was flamingly codependent, meaning they sacrificed their lives for their partners or they couldn't speak up to their mother or they let their kid run roughshod over them. Whatever it was that practice self-care, didn't listen to their internal battery, avoided authenticity, wasn't in touch with their needs. Yeah. Yes, 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 and yes. And he describes, and I can't do this right now, how all of that is related to our physiology and will lead to sickness. And so that's one reason I feel so strongly about it. The other thing is, you know, I say this in the book, it's like such a, it's such a bizarre thing because 
it doesn't work. I mean, that's the thing, right? We live in this delusion that if I just stay focused on this other human being and I try to fix them or change them or save them and I give up X, Y, and Z and all of these, you know, like you said, needs and wants for myself, they'll quote unquote get better or change. And P.S., what happens? (laughs) They get worse. And I get worse. So here it is. Like, this is why I think it's just like addiction. So the insanity of addiction is you're doing something that's killing you, and yet you keep believing it's not, and it's helping you, right? Mm -hmm. Codependency is the same way. So I keep doing this behavior that I believe is going to help the other person, and yet it's killing them, and it's killing me. In what ways does it kill them? Okay, now this is controversial. All right. I was I said those words and then I said to myself a lot of people are going to be upset about this. One of the big reasons I got into this work too is when I would see couples. I I'll take that back. Not that they'll kill them, but they may influence what will happen to them in a negative way. Gotcha. So that would be a better way of saying it. Would it would it be fair to say that it, the lack of consequences yes. can contribute to that. Yes. Is that one of the things that can contribute to uh, the other person getting worse? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's definitely, yes, that's a great way of saying it. And I know, like, I remember there was an article in the um, New York T- Times like a year ago when it was like, codependency shouldn't be talked about anymore and you're blaming the victim, you know, blaming the partner and all that. And I think the thing is, it's like, I don't want to blame any one person because I think both people are responsible. But I do believe that in the old days, and even when I've seen couples, Paul, it you know, typically what happens is two people will come in and the spouse will say they just need to get sober and we'll be fine, which is a lie. <laughs> you just need to get sober and then you can begin to yes. deal with what's really going on. So can they, because the delusion is that they're the ones with the problem, right? And to me, when I see couples, I say, you both have problems. They're just different ones, right? right? And yet when the partner comes in, they often appear like a victim and they, you know, their lives have been ruined and they've stayed with someone for 20 years who's an alcoholic. But the fact is they don't look at, geez, why have I stayed? Or what's been driving me that I feel like I'm, you know, that I think I'm going to change them? What are my own fears? What, what am are my I running own needs? from? Right. Yes. And again, so I'm just saying, you know, both people being responsible will make a difference. And that's controversial. <laughs> well, I think someone on one podcast, maybe Andrea's got really mad at me and said that I was like, blaming the victim. And I, I don't feel as though I'm doing that. I think that just everybody's responsible. Because you right? picked that person and yes. you stayed despite the red flags. You know, as, as we say in one of my support groups, we saw the red flags and we told ourselves it's a parade. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I mean, the thing is, too, just like addiction is a disease of denial, rationalization, minim- minimizing you know, all of those things. So is codependency. I mean, people that are with people where the relationship isn't working can be in just as much denial because you can still, you can believe in your heart of hearts that you're going to 
change this person. You know, I've seen parents, you know, three treatment centers or 10 treatment centers, and they're about to remortgage their house again. And I say, you know, really the best thing you could do is probably ask them to move out. I mean, say the person's 30. And they, their own fear of something happening to that person is what keeps them stuck and keeps yeah. them in that dance. And that's what I mean by killing them in the sense of not setting the consequence doesn't help that person. No, no. Right? And, it, and it's so it's so hard uh, if if you have been the people pleaser, the you yes. know the the whatever your your whole life. You, you're operating on the belief that that person is not an autonomous adult right. that might need to hit a bottom to have a beautiful life, to right. get some clarity, right. to find a different you know, path yes. in their life. Yes, right. That, that was game-changing to me when somebody said, give them the dignity of their own path. Yes. I think it's probably more complicated if we're talking about a child who's living under our Right. I can't imagine how complicated right. that must be. I get it. I get it. The thing is, though, it's the belief that, I mean, I've had parents say, I can't ask them to leave, and then they OD in the, their bedroom, and they're dead. So, again, would and it have been And they might have still OD'd, even uh, if they yes, left. Yes, absolutely. They may have still OD'd. But the belief is, oh, if I, I'm going to keep them safe here. And that's the delusion. And the other thing about codependency is I wanted to broaden it. Not just to people with addiction, but most people, I mean, most people I know have some codependency, whether they're an addict or not. I mean, most human beings to me are run by fear and we can talk about that. You know, I think the human condition being on the planet is not an easy thing to do. It can be scary and we all have fear. And I think those fears lead us to certain relationship patterns you know, that are codependent behavior. And that's not around addiction. That's just being a human and being afraid. Mm -hmm. And so that's another piece of it. I wanted to broaden it to uh, most people, most human beings to look at it. And again, that's why I think the word is so tough because it's so overused mm -hmm. and it's been around for so long and it doesn't really give it justice. I mean, like you're saying, if we can all just identify what our own needs and wants are and feelings are and what's happening over here in my space, then I, you know, we'd be much better off as a couple. It's right. You mentioned a uh, couple's counseling. What, what, um, expand on the, uh, that gray area where a spouse or a partner, uh, needs to differentiate or could benefit from differentiating the difference between my independent needs as a person and my needs, my baseline needs as part of a partnership. Right. Right. Does that make sense? How, how, where does it get, yes. where does it get murky? Right. Well, if we were, and again, tell me if I'm not answering this question, but You're I not guess. answering this question. <laughs> when I think about. When I think about a couple where one person is an addict, and again, some people disagree with me around this one. I always think the person has to get sober for six months before we even, because people want to do couples therapy because it's in their minds, it's easier than letting both people do their own work. And I just think that's really important. I don't think, at least my experience is, 
it's really hard to do couples therapy when someone's in active addiction. Yeah. I mean, let's. Uh, hopefully you agree with that. My psychiatrist <laughs> refused to continue treating me until I got sober 20 okay. years ago, and I thank him because I needed a consequence. Right. I needed that yes. slap in the face that this is more serious yes. than you think it is. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, and I don't think a lot of people are happy about that. No. Especially the partner. You know, I actually had an experience just in the last couple of weeks where someone I know relapsed. And uh, after seven years, and um, to see this relationship dynamic happening is just, it's like right there. I haven't seen active addiction right in front of me for a while. And it's fascinating to watch because... Really, I think what happened is when my when this person, when I originally saw them, she was about to get divorced. And then she came in, she got sober, and then she got pregnant. And then it didn't happen, right? So when I first started seeing her, we talked a lot about her rage towards her husband. And really, when I think about what's happened now over the last seven years is that was never dealt with, right? Getting busy, raising children, all of that stuff. And the rage just gets pushed aside. And now we're in this situation where I literally said the other day, you're enraged with your husband. And she agreed. And yet that's seven years later, right? And seven that, years after her getting sober. Yes. Well, and now relapsing. And now relapsing. Yeah, because because th- that issue has never been resolved. And I started to answer a question, and then I got totally off on a tangent. I'm so sorry because you I, asked yeah. me a direct question. Yes, identifying between what is your need that you need to fulfill on your own, and what is a need that your partner, it where it's a right size need. You know, for instance, yes. You know, you ask for gentleness or. Yes. Um, Cuddling yes, or, or yes. something that that's not unreasonable. You yes. know, it's not like you're saying we need to go to a dungeon for you to <laughs> fulfill all my no. needs, etc. No. Yes. I mean, I think if both people have awareness around what their needs are. But again, a codependent person who's been focused on someone else, it's going to take a long like this person's spouse. It's going to take a long time for him to even know what his needs are. So, I mean. And for the addict, too. I think both people. But you've talked about it on your podcast with the communication with your partner, I think. Just being able to express what you need and negotiate. I Mm -hmm. mean, obviously, both people have needs and hopefully they'll get met. But some things are going to be non-negotiable, right? I mean, yeah, it's all to do with the communication. I, I have never had a difficult conversation with a person where I did not glean information that i previously didn't know about how they felt about something god uh and that to me is is one of the greatest parts about being willing to have a difficult conversation is not only are we advocating for ourselves but we're also giving that person more information about ourselves so they can make a more educated decision it gives both of you an opportunity to reveal your your character or at the very least your willingness yes to work to grow yes not to be perfect, right? But right. to put the energy in, and you can see when your partner is putting effort in, and and when they're not, and when they're not. Yes, yeah. yes, I totally agree. And one thing about codependency is, like you just said, 
you're not giving people the dignity of making their own decisions. If I, if someone says to me, what restaurant do I want to go to? And I say, I don't care. And I'm in a, and I'm in a relationship, but I really do care. I'm not being honest in the relationship. I mean, codependency and people pleasing behavior and avoidance and rationalization and denial and not speaking up for myself and all of that is really not being honest with your partner in a relationship. And so eventually what's going to happen? Resentments are going to build, right? I'm going to end up getting resentful because I'm not being honest with this person. And then I'll start blaming them. Usually. Well, then why did they pick that <laughs> restaurant that they know I'm not crazy about when right. I offered no alternative? I've yes. had that argument many, many times, uh, not necessarily in the relationship Recently. I'm right. in right now, but in the past, yes. it would be like, if you're not going to offer a suggestion, yes. um, you know, and you're just shooting down four of my ideas about where to go eat. And I know it's a fucking first world problem, but still it's emblematic. Yes. Of, of a larger underlying problem, which Absolutely. is I'm afraid to express right. a need or right. I want to have you, uh, you read know, my mind, read my mind <laughs> so then I can play the victim that yes. oh, we're going to that thing. Yes. Again. Absolutely. And that's the ongoing dynamic. And I mean, I say at the beginning of the book, and this is after seeing clients for 30 years, if all of my clients spoke up and set boundaries, I wouldn't have a job. I mean, literally, because most people, again, whether they're in the program or not in the program, can't speak their truth. I mean, we have sponsees. We know tons of people that are getting sober, are sober, and it's the biggest thing for people I know to speak up. And so what's that about? Fear, right? And I think for many of us, we were raised in a play where that was not, those weren't the lines. Absolutely. And how were we going to get thrown into a play that we've never heard the lines to and come up with the right lines? Yes. That's why we need support groups and therapy and reading books and all that other kind of stuff. Yes. Just even identifying, like identifying what you're feeling and thinking, expressing what you're feeling and thinking Mm -hmm. to another human being, actually allowing yourself to feel it. I mean, those are all things what, you know, that happen when we get sober. And that's all part of how to communicate with another person and have a healthy relationship. But again, I think it's so easy to to say, oh, I don't really care about that, Mm -hmm. you know, and yet we do. And there's something about that. And we, you talk about activation with the SE stuff. And I always think when we have that sensation in our chest of like anxiety or some activation, I always say, you know, go back to the past. And, you know, supposedly, and I don't know if this is true, that there are two fears that we're born with, the fear of loud noises and I think the fear of falling. So when I'm working with people, you know, say they're afraid to speak up to their partner, I say to them, and this is in the big book also, right? Mm-hmm. When did you first have that fear? What happened? You know, and usually if you go early, early, early on, something's happened with a primary care caregiver where they wanted to speak up or they did speak up and they got shamed or whatever the experience is. And the problem is and the tragedy is that that one incident then creates a lifetime of a behavior, right? Mm -hmm. A lifetime of I'm not going to speak up because it's not safe. And that's, you know, that's the killer, right? 
You know, and I would, and I would suggest to anybody out there who is in a relationship, uh, whether it's platonic or romantic, where you're feeling resentment or, uh, you're, you're just feeling kind of a vague anger. Yeah. Uh, where I started when I first began communicating and it was in my marriage years and years ago. Yes. Where the first thing I said was, I don't even know what I'm feeling right now. I want to put my fist through a wall. Yes. Which was certainly, you know, not that uh, evolved, but honest. But you owned it. You I didn't owned blame. It. I didn't yes. tell her. That's right. You're pushing me too hard. You're doing. That's right. You're, you're, why do you always do this? Why do you always do that? I just got in touch with what I was feeling and yes. the best I could do right now. You know, later I would uncover that there's sadness, that there's feeling, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. That, you know, it's not a team. Yes. Uh, but right then yes. it's all I could identify. And it didn't make the anger go away. Right. But I didn't make it worse. Yes. And it woke me up to the fact that that's what I'm feeling. And you didn't take it out on anybody else. No. I mean, that's the thing about anger. And I I swear I feel so strongly about the anger piece because I think, to me, it's such a, it's the one emotion, and I don't know if it's just people in recovery or just people in general, that is so hard or scary for people to just yes. acknowledge. They're either afraid I'm going to like lose it and hurt somebody or a lot of women. And I heard this early on that a lot of women who have anxiety to me, a lot of it is like resentment and anger that mm -hmm. they can't get in touch with. And that's a whole thing. I, I think with panic and anxiety, a lot of times I just think rage and fear are such powerful emotions that get repressed. Yeah. And then they bubble up in all these different ways. Right. You know, we could talk about that forever. So but yeah. when I'm around a woman who's uh, expressing anger, I shouldn't say, you're not looking pretty right now. <laughs> Would that be bad? <laughs> Probably might escalate the situation, Paul. But I do think, and you talked about it when you were talking on this podcast about how you were communicating with your partner. And it's it's so simple, like, but it's so critical is to just, and I know you've probably said this a zillion times on this podcast, just to say what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, and then for the partner to validate it and empathize, this is a Harville Hendricks couple stuff, because the thing that people don't realize is that you don't have to agree with your partner to validate them. Uh, what a great... Right? You can be angry point. about something, yeah. and I can validate it, but I might have a totally different perception of it. Which might be a, even a separate conversation it for is, a later time. It is a separate conversation, but that's what happens with couples' communication is someone will express an upset. And the person they'll say, um, geez, I'm so pissed off that you're late tonight. And the person will say, I'm not late. I just, you know, there was traffic. Instead of just saying, I'm sorry you're upset. Period. Immediately, people typically need to get defensive or deny it. Or do the, but what about? But what about, right, just acknowledge it. Again, there could be a whole long reason for why something happened, but it doesn't even matter. You don't have to agree. Right. It's just validating. And I think a lot of people in the beginning, it feels weak and it feels like, like we're not 
standing up for ourselves because I think we view it in the context of this is a disagreement that I need to win. Ah. Uh. Otherwise, it's it's going to be weaponized against me later that I'm quote unquote wrong here. Well, and that's the other thing I always say is there is no right or wrong, right? There's only preferences. I mean, <laughs> really? I mean, say sexual stuff. Some people like certain things. Some people like other things. There isn't right or wrong. There's just what someone likes and what someone doesn't. I mean, I don't know. It's like, and the winning thing would be interesting to talk about. Like, I mean, winning in a relationship, that's a recipe for disaster, right? I mean, nobody wins, right? You tell me. Well, then let's talk about things where you say there's no right or wrong. All right, go ahead. You know, what about... uh, you know, a, a woman finds out that her husband's been fucking the babysitter. Uh, you're not going to you're not going to apply it's, right or wrong to, to I'm, that. I'm not just because it's like I don't think it's necessarily helpful. You hate babysitters. <laughs> I think, Say it. I think I think guys yes. fuck babysitters. Oh, well, I mean, it yes. sucks if it happened to me. But no, I guess I don't. I don't know. Maybe it's from the days of the old S training. Right. It's like, and I'm not talking about yeah. an affair. I'm talking about it's a minor. All right, Paul. You're going to like, yes. I mean, of course, there's behaviors. There's obviously a a, a behaviors that aren't appropriate. But in the big picture, when it comes to couples communication, yes. so often it's just a difference of opinion. I mean, my brother yes. used to say the biggest fights are in the kitchen. Now, Believe me, I don't think there's a right and wrong way to cook. This is an right. example. There's different ways people cook. I feel like such a dick right now. No, you're not a dick. You're just, you're just, I, you're, it's a good point. I mean, I do say there isn't right and wrong. I'm sure there's right. ways to argue that. Yeah. yeah. But you know what I mean. So uh, All let, right. let's talk about um, one of the things that, that, that I really enjoy about uh, the communications that we've had and the conversation that we had before we started recording right. uh, was your honesty about your childhood right. and what what that was like and the things that you experienced um, Yeah, as much as you're comfortable yeah. sharing. The- I mean, I feel like so much of what you talk about on the podcast are probably just another story of like, I mean, mom was the alcoholic, dad was the rager, um, and uh, I had four brothers who I thought were all like tall and thin, and I was short and overweight because <laughs> my first addiction was Twinkies <laughs> and Hostess cupcakes. Um and so, I mean, looking back, you know, I was, it was so funny. I was talking to someone this morning about this, like early on, like say zero to five, I just have these real sensations of feeling invisible. And I don't know if it's because all the boys were just active or, um, I do believe my mom. And in fact, later on in her life, she told me she didn't feel comfortable around girls. So my mother felt way more comfortable with boys. Why do you think that that was? Did she ever say why? She had two brothers herself. And I think she grew up as the old days, you know, tomboy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I joke around that I didn't know I was a girl till I was like 13. So, I mean, I think I was a tomboy too. But I think I just felt um, different. I always felt that my mom, and again, this is just a perception of reality. Obviously she loved me, but I didn't feel as though she liked me. And 
I think, again, later on, she told me she was just really uncomfortable around girls. So it led to the, you know, in Bradshaw's book from the 80s, the family where, you know, obviously different kids bond with different parents. So my, maybe because I was the girl, my father, I became kind of the surrogate wife. You know, my mom was invisible and drunk usually by six o'clock. So I unconsciously and consciously became responsible for his happiness. And what forms did that take? Well, were you the perfect uh, uh, student? God, I wish. No, no. My brothers were much. I was thinking about this the other day at the dinner table. My dad would give quizzes. (laughs) And. It's really bizarre because he wouldn't even really ask me, like, when I think back, and again, I don't know what reality is, but it always felt like the boys were the smart ones. And of course, I ended up being the one to get the PhD, but that's all right. But, um, you know, they were just treated, and I think it's just because of his generation. You know, girls were supposed to grow up and cook and be housewives, and, you know, not that he wasn't proud of me later on, but, um, yeah, I don't remember just kind of being seen. I mean, it was, we were big tennis players growing up. That was a huge thing to make him happy. But more of it was just the emotional attention that he, that I felt like he needed. I mean, this is going to sound really minor, but I had to sit next to him at the dinner table. And, oh, I just feel sick to my stomach thinking about it right now, Paul. Yeah, just because it was like this, I was the partner. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. My mother would sit at the other end and the boys would sit around, but I had to sit next to him. And it just gives me that kind of creepy feeling like, why was I the one? Do you know what I mean? Why was it my job? And again, it wasn't like anybody said this, but because mom was kind of invisible, and I do remember her later in my life when during my drinking days calling me like his little whore. She and, called you his little boy. Yeah. Even though... Did she call you that when you were uh, a child or an adolescent or... or well, I, no, adolescent. Yeah. Not little, but as I started drinking and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, dressing provocatively and going out and acting out. Um, yeah. I mean, the bizarre thing was, and I, you know, I've said this before too, is even though I feel like she handed me to him on a silver platter because she didn't want to deal with them. At the same time, she was jealous, which I think is, a you know, it's just the way it is. Probably not unusual. Yeah, I don't think it's unusual at all. And uh, so she was kind of this tragic character. I mean, just kind of everybody loved her because she drank. And, you know, I remember her smoking pot with my brothers. So she was a fun drunk? Yes. Other than calling her daughter, (laughs) her husband's a little whore. Right. Okay, I guess I need to get him some reality here, Paul. Yes, other than that. But then I could say she was drunk. Right. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. could say, oh, she didn't really mean it. She was drunk. Yeah, we, we had a guest a, a while back, uh, Andrea Abbott. And it was a great, great episode. And one of the ways that she explained away her father raping her was, well, he was drunk. Right, right, right. Yeah. She was like, it's not as bad as where a sober dad has sex with his daughter. And I, I was just like, wow, it never ends. It never if ends. Gonna, if we're going to minimize something, that the brain will come up with anything. Right, right. Well, and I think when you're in the house, whatever house you're in, it is 
it's feeling quote unquote normal, right? Even though eventually you learn that it's not normal. I mean, it was trickier. And you've talked about this too, the kind of covert incest stuff, like the, um, you know, I'd be in the kitchen and he'd put his hands down the back of my pants and squeeze my ass. Wow. Right. And yet, and you know, wow. Yeah. And yet when I think back to just like preparing dinner and that would be happening, it wasn't like anybody said, oh, that's a bizarre thing that that happened. Do you know what I mean? So it wasn't like mm-hmm. full on, you know, like this other person you talked to, but bizarre kind of like, you know, we talked about the bathroom thing, like wanting to barge into the bathroom when you're in there. He he would. He would. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, thinking, you know, my mother used to say. God, this is so bizarre now that I'm saying this. He just doesn't know how to play with kids. Wow. And yet, so I'd be in the bathroom as a little girl, and he'd come up to the door, and he'd just be like pounding the door, and then he'd be laughing. So kind of like scaring me and and then laughing about it and thinking this is funny. My An old analyst of mine, when I was in graduate school, said he had some a little bit of sadistic tendencies, which he I, probably did. It sounds did. like it. Which he probably I, was did. Just, I was just going to say, <laughs> wow, that's pretty sadistic. Right, right. And just that terror as a kid. And, I mean, again, yeah, all this stuff you're talking about in therapy years later, right? But at the time, yeah, you're just trying to survive, I'm sure, like most of your guests. Yeah. So what what were the ways that you were spousified? Um some some examples where uh you look back now and you're like, "Wow, I I was his his Well, I was wife. the one that he would talk to about everything. Right. Especially my mother's drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's why I get so I definitely have a button about people <laughs> stay in marriages with kids. I do, because I begged my father to divorce my mother. You know, because again, here I want to say it was killing her, but it was because... And it was killing he, you. And it was killing the kids and killing him. But he, you know, out of his own fear, he would never leave her. And he would say, oh, I couldn't do that to her. But it was really because, this is a whole other tangent, but I think my father was gay. And... He so I just don't think he could ever face any of his own stuff. Um, so so yeah, they but yeah, so my I was I can't remember the question you asked me, but the thing uh, about wait, parents, wait, the, saying, the, oh, the, the principalification, right? So just being like his best friend, quote unquote, talking to me about mom's drinking. Um, you know, when I moved out of the house and, and started college, you know, he'd want to, you know, meet for dinners and lunch all the time. And again, that's all right. But I remember this one, when I got into therapy and I started setting boundaries with him and he was supporting me financially while I was in college. And I remember one time he called me and he wanted to have dinner. And I said, I really can't, I have a paper. And he said, do you want your monthly check? And I said, are you saying to me right now that if I don't have dinner with you, you're not going to give me money to like that you send me to support me in college? And he just started laughing. And that was it. But it's that, you know, it's so once I started setting boundaries, 
of course, it got a little better, but it's endless. With people that are yes. narcissists, you have set boundaries chronically. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's the their their brain is orbiting a different planet. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And that was one of the things I think that that has helped me if I have to uh, either back away from a relationship with somebody or sever ties is to understand that our realities aren't overlapping. It's not that they are intentionally trying to disrespect me. Right. It's just two totally different realities. Two totally different brains. Right. Right. That just happen to be on the same planet. Absolutely. You know, their brain isn't on this planet or maybe my brain's not on this (laughs) planet because there are times I look back at my lack of boundaries. Right. Choosing a topic to talk about or uh, expressing an opinion or, you know, what whatever it was. Right. And I just think, oh, my God, that's so embarrassing. That's I was so unaware. Right. Uh, right. I mean, we don't know until we know. Right. Yeah. I mean, we don't. Right. Yeah. It's funny because I. um I finally lost it with him one Thanksgiving meal when I'd been sober like a few years and everybody was there, you know, my four brothers, their wives, and we're at this huge table and I get up and I'm clearing some of the dishes and I go to clear his plate and he slaps me in the ass and I freaking lost it. I just, it was like all the rage Mm -hmm. and the energy from like years of that happening. I just, you know, I don't want you to ever touch me there ever, you know, like just Mm -hmm. like, like just this energy came out and you know what you were just saying about people's cool, you know, he literally in his world didn't know what was wrong. Right. Right. Cause in his world, you can do whatever you, you know, and and yeah, Yeah. it might probably never crossed his mind that this is humiliating to her or maybe it did. And he got off on that. Who knows? Right. How was the stuffing? That's the important question. Did it have sage? To sage will drive people bananas. That probably was it. That might have been why I lost it. I'm not sure. You are hilarious. What what else Um, do you want to... uh... What else do we want to talk... I mean, there's so many things to talk about, but... um, Yeah. Uh, What are some of the things that you... uh, Your... YouTube channel is called Leaving Crazy Town. What are some of the things that you talk about in that? You do it with, uh, is Finn on yeah, every episode? my buddy Finn, yes. Okay. Yeah, he's someone that I met at the beginning of COVID when we started doing Zoom meetings. And um, it was a meeting from Cape Cod. And we just had the same sense of humor. He was married and he and his wife had started this meeting and uh, we just hit it off. And then eventually he asked me if I would do a codependency group for a bunch of people from the meeting. And so I, we ended up doing that. And um, then we just started talking about doing some videos. So it, what we do each week is we pick a topic, communication, parenting, boundaries, whatever. And then we share stories from our own lives or something that, I mean, like we say, there's more content, you know. There's endless content because of our lives. Um, so each week, one of us will tell a story and I'll give a little psychological, you know, twist on it. And then we'll give tips at the end. I mean, they're only 10 minute videos. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. It's really fun. And you know yeah. what? I just, 
I don't know if I'm tired of talking about trauma. I mean, you may feel this way I get bur- at times. I get burned out oh. uh, talking about it, but then sometimes it'll come up and I'm like, it I learned really this thing that I need to share because yes. I'm a fucking fixer. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Our new book comes out or you're listening. Yes, absolutely. I just feel like I really want to have some fun. And this is a really serious topic, but I also want to make it a little light so people can swallow it and, you know, learn from it and maybe identify. I mean, a lot of the stories we tell, I think people can identify. Um, And I get really adamant about the parenting thing. I mean, that's one of the topics that I get. In fact, when someone was editing the book, they said you should really write a parenting book because it just seems like, and I don't know if it's just the culture now. Do you have kids? No. No. Okay. I don't know if it's just the culture now, but the over-involvement that the kids have with, I mean, the parents have with their kids and the lack of awareness to me, the parents have that it's their own issue coming out and it's really got nothing to do with the kid, but it's so often the interactions are about the parents' fear rather than what the kid yes, really wants. Yes. And that to me, codependency with kids is huge. It, it, it huge. often appears to the parent as uh, guidance and protection. Oh, God. Right. Right. And obviously there's a gray area. Uh, yeah, depending their- on their age. Depending on their age. But kids to me, by the as some book I read said by like the age of eleven, they're like they know what they want. I mean they and yet I see so many parents, either clients or sponsees, just you know, some some people I know have their kids like in four different sports, say in one season. And I'll say, gee, do they want to do all their sport? You know, mm-hmm. and they'll say, well, yeah, they do. and I'll say, but it's your job to set a boundary. Do you know what I mean? And it just seems like, yeah, whatever their agenda is, that's what they're not aware of. There's. It's so awesome when you see a parent who takes a curiosity and what their child likes and finding ways to support that as one of the most beautiful things in the world to to see, especially if it's offbeat. If if maybe it's a a person who was uh, biologically born male but enjoys playing with dolls or doing something else and that parent just clues into that and right. it's like this is who they are right and it's okay how can i support it right yeah right absolutely and i don't think that i don't think that's happening i don't think that's the norm you know there's a great book i, I feel like it's getting it's better. getting better absolutely especially with gender stuff that's yeah. all the topic yeah. but um there's a great book called i'd listen to my parents if they just shut up <laughs> you know and it's <laughs> You know, because we don't just take the time to hear what, you know, they need to say. And again, validate it without agree. We don't have to agree with everything, but we can listen. But I think our own fear gets triggered so often. Fear of of maybe seeing them experience pain or disappointment or failure or ostracization. Yes, right. Right. No, but that's the biggest thing to me is the parent's fear of just the kid having feelings Mm -hmm. and the disservice it is to your kids when you don't just let them experience 
the disappointment mm-hmm. or the the C or whatever it is, instead of calling the teacher 18 times to get their grade up, let them have the consequence like you're talking right, about. Right. Yes. Let them let them have the the feeling. Yes. Uh, and ask yourself how much of this is me feeling uncomfortable that they're crying or they're sad. And I want to make I'm um, and I'm saying, but look at all this other positive stuff you have rather than just, you know, for five minutes. Just going, I'm so sorry you're going through this. I'm sorry you're in pain. Giving them a hug. Just being That's quiet. It. And then maybe a later conversation, totally unrelated, you're like, you know, you're a, look at all this great stuff that you right. that you have in your life. You're you're intelligent, you have friends, you have your health. But I think saying that when the person is sad or you know, whatever it, and I've been that person a thousand times. You're trying to just make it better. I'm trying to make it better. Yes. You're trying to make it better. And I'm invalidating them in that, in that moment. Yes. Very hard to know. I mean, I often say to parents, because I've seen it with clients, if you can't set a boundary with a three-year-old or a five-year-old, you're going to be a prisoner when they're 16, because I've seen it happen. If you can't set a boundary when a kid is young, when they're 16, they're going to be running the household. And I've seen it. Yeah, you've you just know? described Gracie. Oh, <laughs> you have just described Gracie. <laughs> we do have a video. I am going to send you called "Codependency with Our Pets." Yeah, it's a big hit. Yeah, yeah. I think it has the most views. Yeah, okay. it's very. <laughs> when people come over, <laughs> she will. First of all, she jumps up on them. You know, puts her front legs on their on their legs. Which is kind of cute, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the other thing that she will do is if then I start talking to that person, she will bark nonstop until one of us pays attention to her. And that's not good. Right. Right. But I don't want to set a boundary and break her heart because she's a princess and an angel and she was sent from heaven. I say in the beginning of the pet video... I have two goldfish. This is an incredibly boring story, but I've had them literally for 18 years. I'm not kidding. Really? My son won them two years in a row at a fair, and he's now 22. And he was like four and five. And I say at the beginning of the video, I say one morning I got up and I went to the tank, and their names are Joe and Jeff. And I had the thought, I think Joe and Jeff are mad at me. And my next thought was, I don't think goldfish can get mad. (laughs) And if you can do that with a PhD, imagine how fucked up the rest of us are. Oh, my God. I love that. Oh, my God. Anyways, yeah. Codependency with anybody. But, yeah. So. And, And what's the name of your book? Uh, it's called Code Crazy, and again, just because I was so tired of the word codependency, plus, and we didn't talk about this, but uh, part of the reason I wrote it, too, is because I have a doctorate degree. I was so Brazilian years. I'd been to Al-Anon for 20 years, and my husband relapsed, and I got crazy. And I thought to myself, if I have all this experience and I'm still struggling with how to deal with this, then the average person without a degree or 20 years of Al-Anon mm-hmm. is just lost. And so that's really was part of why I wrote it too, because it's so tricky. It's so tricky. Yeah. I mean, I always thought I was just a nice person. 
I didn't know people pleasing was a disservice to someone and myself. Yeah. I mean, just little behaviors like that. I mean, I had no idea. So, I mean, that was and I couldn't save his life and I had to ask him to leave. And so, I mean, I guess it just to me is, uh, yeah, it's a big deal. And it's so subtle. It's so subtle. It's so subtle with parenting, with partners. Oh, you know, I have I have um, clients will often say, I'll talk about a boundary and they'll say, but he's such a good kid. And I'll say. And. Yes. I'm sure he's a great kid. Right. 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 He's a good kid. And he needs a boundary, you know, staying up till three o'clock playing video games or whatever. Yeah. I heard that video game episode, by the way. (laughs) My friend Susan, she's the one who she she knew who you were and um, has listened to all your episodes and told me about you. And that's how I found out about you. But she sent me the video because my son had played video games. Anyways, we're off on a tangent. Go ahead. Uh, that that reminds me of uh, a moment. And I believe I've, I've shared this on the podcast before, but talking about not coming up, coming out and just asking for something rather being manipulative. And I remember one time I needed to leave the house in about 10 minutes and and I was hungry and I had something that was occupying me until I had to leave. And I, so I was saying out loud, God, I don't think I'm going to have time to make a sandwich before I leave. And, and my then wife just went, just ask me to make the fucking sandwich. Right. But yep. I was so afraid of having a need or looking, yes. you know, like Archie Bunker. That no. <laughs> I, I well, we this all have these. Yeah. And these skills. I mean, that's the thing. We all have these things that maybe when we were kids, maybe manipulative behavior or whatever we mm-hmm. did as kids to survive were helpful. Right. All these skills like we call in the big book self-seeking behaviors now, but are character defects. But they were great skills. And then we try to use them as adults and people get pissed off or wonder why. Mm -hmm. And we don't. The thing is, we don't need them anymore, but we don't know it. Right. Right. We don't need to be manipulative, but we don't know that we're still operating from the past. Yeah. Yeah. And, And if we just ask outright for something like we were talking about earlier, it gives that other person an opportunity to reveal their character. Yes. And usually there's a chance they're not going to explode on you for <laughs> asking three minutes of their time to help you. Absolutely. I mean, healthy relationships won't. And I often say that to the problem with asking for what you need is finding out that the person can't meet it. Right. I mean, that's the problem. I think that's a lot of reasons why a person won't say to I've heard from clients, well, I don't know if they want to have a child. Say they're 39 years old and, well, have you asked them, you know, if they ask them and they say no, or maybe the partner will say, I'm open to it, but they really don't want a child. I mean, again, it's all that fear and not being honest when you're going to save yourself a lot of pain down the road. Right. Right. And I think one of the things that that was a revelation, at least to me, was that the more I talked about the feelings, the better I got at talking about my feelings was like a caveman in the beginning. (laughs) Fist through wall. (laughs) Sandwich, please. You know, and it gets it gets better. It's a muscle. It definitely gets better. Right. Right. Yes. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was as enjoyable as I thought it was going to be. Um 
thank you for coming into thank town. You. I'm going to lie to myself and tell me that you came in just to do this <laughs> podcast so I can feel like a big shot. But uh, your YouTube channel is Leaving Crazy Town. Your book is Co Crazy. Uh, and people can find you on Yeah, either the website. Media. Yeah, just go to my website. My email's on there. I literally. And it's Dr. Sarah Michaud. Dr. Sarah Michaud. Yep, dot com. Michaud is M I C H A U D. Very yep. fancy French lady. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thanks. <laughs> many, many thanks to Dr. Michelle. Let's take a, a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Nobody. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? You're obnoxious. You're self-pitying and self-absorbed and pathetic. You should be focusing more on other people. The reason everyone leans on you is because you're good at helping them. Complaining about that being too much to handle isn't just self-centered, it's irresponsible. Stop getting lost in your head. Your wife has been dead for two years, not two hours. Move on. Everyone is counting on you. Manage everyone's problems and be there when everyone vents and man the fuck up for five seconds. You're old enough to be stronger than this. It's really embarrassing that you're not. Wow, that is that is some some pro level harsh, and uh, yeah, I know what probably everybody is thinking who who heard this is what about you? What about your needs? And nothing, nothing can keep us from taking care of ourselves like the belief that we're selfish. And not that we're never selfish, but when you're feeling drained and you're feeling like you just need to <laughs> take a break from being Superman or Superwoman, listen to that instinct. You know, I try to remember that when I start to get codependent and I feel like it's up to me to save somebody from some difficulty, that they're adults. And and there's a huge spectrum of what's appropriate and not appropriate for people to expect. And a lot of times people aren't even asking us for help, but we feel like we got to play this role to, to swoop in and save them from feeling something or struggling. And I don't know, it's so complicated. And I suppose that that's why there's books written about codependency and self-care. This is from the love survey filled out by Thoroughly Modern Millie. And she writes, I love beans on toast. 
I'm not British, but I heard it was popular there, so I decided to try it one day. Oh my God, why isn't this a thing everywhere? The crunch of toast plus the savory slash sweet beans makes it the perfect comfort food. I always think of uh, Ringo Starr when somebody talks about beans on toast when they took that famous trip to uh, India to spend time with a Maharishi. He he was afraid that he wasn't going to like the food over there, and he brought like a suitcase full of canned beans. Uh, he writes, I love my wife. Probably should have listed her <laughs> ahead of beans on toast. Her eyes sparkle as does her heart. I love my sweet, scruffy dog, Baxter. He's the cutest thing on three legs. Oh, we adopted him late in his life, and he is remarkably spry for a 10-year-old. Can I just say how awesome you are and anybody that adopts a dog who is middle-aged or beyond, and especially a dog with special needs. That is, uh, he writes, I love taking him to the dog park and seeing him romp, or, romp around with younger pups. He's only 20 pounds, but loves playing with the bigger dogs. I hope to give him the most golden of golden years. Oh, that's so sweet. Is there anything really more <laughs> uplifting than a happy dog that's missing a leg? This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Fearful Queer, who uh, they identify as gender fluid, and they write, I'm a disabled young adult who is working towards moving out on my own for the first time. The issue is my dad's side of the family expects me to take care of my younger sibling. They have severe mental health issues, have stolen from me, and hurt me in many ways due to their mental health. I still love them, though, and we are still trying to have a relationship, but I feel like if they come to live with me, it will wreck both our mental health and my physical health. Am I a horrible sibling for wanting them to live with someone else? No, you are not. Your instinct, I think, is correct, is that you need to protect your mental health. We cannot... <clears throat> sacrifice our mental health and uh, we have to protect our mental health. That's, that's all I will say. And there are a thousand different ways that we can love somebody. You can love them outside of letting them stay with you. You could go to support group meetings. You know, you could check in on them on the phone Ask if you can pick them up something from the grocery store or none of those things. You can love people from a distance. You can love people and not even have contact with them. You know, you can, you can love people by setting boundaries and giving them consequences. And they may not see it as love, but by not enabling their sick and abusive behavior, um, you, that is an act of love. It's a healthy choice. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and I think these next two surveys are filled out by, uh, by him. Uh, it's a guy who calls himself Hank. He identifies as bisexual, and he's in his 30s. And um, he battles a host of things, anxiety, uh, alcoholism and drug addiction, anorexia, uh, experiencing sexual bias. He writes, my dad used to beat the shit out of me for doing anything he thought was gay, and now I can't think... That dude's suit looks cool without being anxious. I will kill myself if I'm ever outed. 
about experiencing racial and cultural bias. He writes, when someone tells me I'm one of the good Muslims, I wish the guy who tried to strangle me for being Muslim when I was a kid had succeeded. Why can't I be seen as a good person instead of a good token? That has to be incredibly frustrating. Uh, about uh, experiencing dissociation. He writes, everything is blurry around the edges. Everyone is a shape and sounds. I haven't felt anything all day, but no one notices. And that doesn't hurt because I'm not present. I'm not here. I'm over in the corner watching the body I'm supposed to be in. He also experiences depression and suicidal thoughts and feelings. And uh, give us a snapshot from your life. We're in a meeting, record profits, and we haven't even hit December when the holiday rush will hit. Everyone is genuinely pleased with me. I look out the window and think, you're 250 feet up or more. You can't survive the fall. This is high enough. My supply coordinator claps me on the shoulder and says something. Panic floods my veins. I don't want someone to somehow see this and realize I'm by. I'm not here anymore. I'm in the corner. I manage an excuse to leave. I go to the bathroom, pop two pills, and squeeze a bruise on my arm until I'm in my body again. Pills hit fast on an empty stomach. I'm more successful than I've ever been. I touch the other pills in my pocket and imagine overdosing in the stall. I'm on top of the world. I am nothing. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Fuck. And this is another survey by, by Hank. And I assume this is the same Hank. Um, this is from the How Have You Handled Sexual Advances. And I think this, this might explain a lot. You know, not that what he has listed so far you know, isn't enough to make sense of how he feels about himself and his place in the world and lack of safety. Um, but this is how have you handled sexual advances on uh, to the question, you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? He writes some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. My dad beat the shit out of me because he thought I was gay and he would have hit my mom, but I always put myself in between them. My mom loved me. My mom would sleep in my bed instead of hers. Sometimes she would touch me in ways I didn't like or want. Sometimes she would touch me in my sleep. She vented to me and I kept her sane despite her depression and fear of my dad. I don't hate her. I don't like what happened. When the memories come back, I have to hurt myself in order to stop thinking about it. It started when I was eight and didn't stop until I was 12 and she died. Wow. Wow. You know, and you write that your mom loved you. And I don't, I don't doubt that there was some love there and that your mom believed that she loved you and that that was a loving way to act towards you. And I don't doubt that sometimes you experienced healthy love from your mom, but the shit that you just wrote is so not love it is so abusive and selfish and sick 
on the part of your mom. He also writes, my relationship with my mother was extremely complicated. It ranged from gripping my sheets and whispering, please stop, while she didn't, to laying there and letting her do it so we could get her it over with. He also writes, I avoid sex with anyone as much as I can, always. I don't trust someone to treat me with any real respect or love, and I don't want to test it. I don't know why I resist other than sheer fear and not wanting to risk getting attached. I want deeply meaningful, emotionally connective sex, and I had a panic attack when a friend put a hand on my shoulder recently. Something is deeply wrong with me. How did answering any of these questions make you feel? It's like a weight is lifted, but not all of it. Never all of it. I'm still being crushed. Uh, Any suggestions to make the podcast better? More of your music. If we have to work as a group to encourage you, by Allah, we will. Do not test us. We are legion and we are supportive. And I appreciate that. And I really hope that you can open up to a therapist or a support group and begin. Um, I mean, the way that, that you are reacting to touch and intimacy makes total sense given what happened to you as a child. Who wouldn't be terrified of people and touch and other people's needs? But I believe, I really, really believe to my core that we can heal it just takes a lot of effort and it's confusing and inconvenient and frustrating and we experience grief and sadness and rage but it's so much better to tap into those feelings in a in a safe environment where we can let them out and then when that pressure is released it's easier to develop different coping mechanisms. You know, if, if we're not releasing them, we go to the immediate thing, the pills or the cutting or the, you know, being rageful. But I'm sending you some love, buddy. And speaking of loves, this is uh, our last survey, and this is filled out by a person who calls himself, I left your flowers by the sea. And they write, I love returning from a long trip to be greeted by the old wood scent of my 100-year-old house. Oh, I love that one. I'd love to see the, the wood in your house. And is that a sexual innuendo? Absolutely. I love how in my dreams, whenever there are written words, like on a sign or a book cover, the words are always just random letters strung together, a complete lack of coherent words. I often notice this in my dreams and stop to see what crazy thing my brain has concocted this time. I love how the first French word I learned was courgette, uh, which is, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's French for zucchini. I was in line at a grocery store in Paris and everyone turned to me as I fumbled in the checkout line. The adrenaline rush burned this word deep into my mind and this taught me a key lesson about how to learn a new language. You just have to get out there and jump in and when people start hissing at you, your body will do the rest. I love feeling surprised when I capture an exceptionally beautiful photo, a gift from the universe. I love when I share it with others and they receive it as a gift too. 
And finally, I love this anonymous haiku poem from centuries ago. I regret picking and not picking violets. Thank you for that. And thank you to everybody for your surveys and your support. And I hope uh, you're surviving the the trifecta of uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. And uh, I'm going to have some people over for New Year's because I don't want to. <laughs> because I know, and, and it's to me it's an example of it's a healthy choice because I have the time, I have the space to do it. I love the people I'm inviting. And sometimes I get in a rut and not getting outside my comfort zone. And I think it's a healthy um, a healthy choice for me to do it. And my girlfriend's excited, and the people I've invited are excited, and I know I'm going to have a good time. Um, and uh, I'm going to share, as, uh, as we go out, I'm going to share a little piece of music that I did. It's not very long. I like how I'm I'm automatically beginning to backpedal in the event that there's something about it that you don't like. But um, yeah, it's inspired by some of the music that I love, and I'm sure you will hear the influences in it and say, oh, that sounds like uh, he loves so-and-so. Anyway, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, never forget, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. <laughs>